Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is digital workflow specialist, filmmaker, and podcaster, James Ellis Deakins. James lives in Los Angeles and is both the creative and business partner of cinematographer Roger Deakins. James came up the ranks as a script supervisor for such films as Thunderheart, The Shawshank Redemption, and Mercury Rising. She has transitioned into a digital workflow specialist, working in a role James really enjoys as she gets to work with her best friend and creative partner, her husband Roger, on such films as Sicario, No Country for Old Men, 1917, Blade Runner 2049, and their latest collaboration with director Sam Mendes, Empire of Light. During the pandemic, James created the Team Deacons podcast, which is a series of conversations between James and Roger and a guest covering all aspects of movie making. This podcast is such a great resource for both beginning and seasoned filmmakers and everyone in between, and I am so excited it's coming back for season two. I discovered James through the Team Deacons podcast, and I decided to be bold and send the podcast an email asking if James would like to be on Blissful Spinster. To my surprise, James herself answered, and she said yes. I am so excited to bring you my conversation with James. We laughed a lot, we learned a lot, and it's the kind of chat that leaves you smiling. We talked about the importance of collaboration on a film, what directors can learn from script supervisors, and how we both believe in sharing our knowledge. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, James. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm glad to be here. I'm so happy you said yes to doing my podcast. I think this is the first one I've ever done that I wasn't leading. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. And I wanted specifically to ask you just because I am a fan of Team Deacons and when I listen to you, you, you ask all these questions. I'm like, I want to ask her questions. So that's why I'm so happy <laughs> that you said yes. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I'm ready. Okay, cool. I'm going to start the way you always start with your guests. So uh, it's coming back to hit. Me. Yeah, it is. It's coming back to hit you. <laughs> when, when and how did your journey into film and arts and stuff begin? It's funny because when I was in high school, because I am a bit of an overachiever, I took an AP, an advanced placement history course, and there was a list of papers that I had to do, that you could do, and there were asterisks by some, and they said, oh, don't do those because they're hard. So I decided to do one, and one was an interpretation of Charles B. Beard's economic critique of the Constitution of the United States. So I had a lot of fun with it because I said, no, 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 it's not based on economics, it's based on ideals, and I did all this stuff. And so I decided I wanted to go into economics, which I mean, from theory going into economics. So I went to college and I took a semester of economics and GNP and NNP. It was awful. It was just, but my concept was, oh, I'll be the president of GM. I'll be the first woman president of GM. But then I realized, do I really want to? And in the meantime, I had taken Latin and Greek in sort of a a program that started very early. So I was very advanced in Latin. Actually, I'd taken Latin. So I started taking Latin and realized, oh, I want to continue that because it's something I would never do on my own. I might do psychology. I would read the books on my own, but translating Latin on my own, I wouldn't really be doing. And when you do Latin, you're reading philosophers and history. And so it's really, it's great. But then I got in, I also was interested in Greek through the theory of it because I read some translations and 
I would go to the teacher and say, well, in Latin, it would be this construction, which would cast doubt on it. No, no, in Greek, it's this. So purely from a theoretical standpoint, I decided I wanted to do Greek too. So as an undergraduate, I did a graduate court uh, degree in Latin and an undergrad in Greek. And it turned out I hated Greek. <laughs> but anyway, so my father was like, oh my God, what are you going to do when you get out? You've got to support yourself. I'm not going to support you. And I said, yeah, I know, I know, but I'm not going to teach, but okay. And in the meantime, I got involved in doing multimedia shows. And these were slideshows with a soundtrack. So it was freshman orientation and junior orientation. And it was that telling the story that I really started to enjoy. And we did this multimedia presentation on rape on campus, but we weren't allowed to say that it could happen by people that you might know. Wow. And that, of course, was the most important thing to get across. So I had this idea that we would there, there were certain landmarks of the campus. So we would shoot all our slides with those landmarks to try and say, this can happen here. So I was fascinated by the power of that. That actually could work. So when I, I graduated, I went to New York and I thought, okay, I'm going to get into film. And I did want to direct. I, I just thought it would be great. But then I needed a job quickly. So I was given a job at, at a lab and it was supposed to be just to organize a service department. But I was given the title of supervisor. So all of the guys from the bottom of the lab that never see the light of day would come up and go, oh, the CRI has Newton wings. Should I run it through the bath again or should I reprint it? And I didn't even know what a CRI was. So I would say, hang on, I'll find out. Because And I went to the supervisor, the big supervisor, and, and he explained to me what a CRI was, what Newton rings were, how to look, how to make that decision. So I started getting into the technical end and I became a true supervisor. So I rose up in the lab and I was doing the equivalent job to a, a man, another man who, of course, was married with children and was making three times as much. So I asked for a raise because I actually was doing it and they stalled me and installed me. And then I went to a set to travel to a set to check that the DP was having a problem with the dailies. And the guys that I knew on the crew, well, they convinced me, actually, yeah, they convinced me to quit. And that was like, oh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. So I came in the next day and I said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to quit. And they said, well, we'll give you a $25 raise. And But luckily my mind was already gone. I said, no, no, I got to go. So I couldn't leave for two months because the president and the chairman and the vice president were out at conventions and I was running a lab. So I thought, hmm, that's funny. And they wouldn't give me a raise. But that was the best thing that happened to me because then I did post-production once and I was on a set and one of the guys said to me, why don't you do, hey, James, what you should do is a script supervisor. We don't really know what it is, but it's a lot of detail. You'd probably like it. And so I had no idea what it was. <laughs> and I'm so happy that the first jobs that I did were small jobs. I think that's really important because you learn on the job. I started scripting and because it is an impossible job, I loved it <laughs> because one person can't do it, but you have to, you know, and basically as a script supervisor, you're the memory of the film. So you're, uh, what I liked about it is you see the film in its entirety and you have to remember what the dreams were in prep. And then when you're actually shooting 
when you have to change something, how it affects something down the line. And an actor will might come up to the director who's completely overwhelmed with so much and say, I don't want to take my bag out of the house when I leave. And that seems like a great idea, but the script's got to be there going. But three scenes later that we shot two months ago, he has the bag. So then it comes right after. So that doesn't work. So I just love the idea of having the full movie in my head the whole time. And it's also the power of cutting, knowing the power of cutting and knowing what you don't need and what you do need. So yeah, I I enjoyed it. Now the uh, script also has to do all these other things. It's continuity. You are working with other departments, but you're overseeing and making sure that everybody's on the same page because oftentimes you know something from the director that the other departments don't do. So you spread the word and you're working with, you're working with production and your production reports because you're letting them know how many pages were shot. And the most important thing is you're checking running time, which I think I've noticed a lot of times lately, they seem to do less of, and that's not good because you get in trouble in the end. You have to time it in the beginning, which was always the worst part for me, because uh, like I had to do the battle and I'd say, get out of the room. I've got a time. Go away. And because you have to act it out because you need to know the physicality of how long it'll take. And you need to know from the director how he's or she is planning to cut it. And then you keep track of it when you shoot it. And so if things seem to, and of course you do, you may do five shots for a scene, but you have to think of it cut together and how long that scene's running. So you really have to know in your head, you've got to be able to cut. And then you've got to say, look, we seem to be, every scene we seem to be coming 30 seconds over, but that's adding up. Because if you don't catch it then, in the end, to have to do that in the cutting room, you're taking away scenes that you want in the movie, but something's got to go because you do have that agreement normally to deliver a certain length of film. So I, I think that's really important and, and also one of the hardest things to do. And then you just also, you're making sure that the script itself is shot, that all the things that you may have talked with the director in the beginning, oh, it would be great if we remember to get an insert in this scene because we might actually play it later just as a flashback or something or wild track or visual effect shots that you need to get. So you, you need to keep all of that together. So I liked it. I mean, it definitely is a challenge. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Sorry, I've gone on. <laughs> no, I love those kinds of answers. I'm just, I, I took a script supervision class, I think when I, I moved here in 97, mm -hmm. or 96, sorry. And, you know, when you're a PA and you're trying to yeah. figure out your way on to set. Yeah. And at some point somebody gave like this, like you pay $25 and you come to this room <laughs> and we'll teach you everything you need to know to be a script supervisor. And I remember just being like, it was so much yeah. like you were just talking about. And I think it's such a valuable, because yeah. I haven't had one on my short films. Oh, really? Because I haven't had, well, I haven't been able to, yeah. like, I didn't have a friend who knew how to do it. But uh, I have a friend who knows how to operate a camera. And <laughs> between the two of us, we're like, yeah, that's the frame we <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> and I taught myself how to edit. I've edited my short films. Yeah. Because I don't, I didn't feel right about not paying an editor. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to ask friends to come over for a couple days yeah. to help you film it. It's another thing to ask someone to work two months while you're trying to, yeah. to shape the thing. But script supervision is just I like I long for the day I have that partner <laughs> yeah, set, yeah. keeping track and adding and elevating 
to what comes out in the end. And I hadn't even thought about the timing. I don't think I even knew that, that you're editing it the film in your head as say I'm directing the film you're letting me know if I'm shooting too much or if they're not moving fast enough when we're doing the scene or whatever it is it's fascinating to me and also the script supervisor should be in contact with the editor because the other thing the script is doing is they're giving the editor notes so if the director is saying I like this take and this take the script then says what in the other takes that they're not looking at right away they didn't like. So if they're concerned about the ending and the preferred takes, they can look on her or his notes and say, oh, but this one they just didn't like the beginning. Maybe the end's right. So you're giving them a book that basically tells them what's in all of the footage and you're keeping track of lens information. So if you ever have to reshoot and stuff like that. But I think cutting your own films in, in one respect, it's great because there's nothing like cutting something to understand. I used to, as a script supervisor, go into the cutting room afterwards if they would let me and sit and see what they had done because it taught me not to think there's only one way to do it. So it was good. But at the same time, it's also good to have a, another set of eyes yeah. who goes, I don't care it took out eight hours to do this shot. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. No, and I don't... By any means, I already have an editor attached to my film, a, a really brilliant female editor that I've, I work my day job. What I, what lets me pay my rent is working in, in, at the moment in true crime kind of documentary right. television area. And so I met my editor. Um, her name's Caitlin Dixon on one of those docs uh-huh. and she's just brilliant and funny and we just get along really well. And, but because I've done some editing, uh, we can talk. Like we have a shared language that's good. and that's what I think. And I also think on set or when I'm looking at my own script, cause I've written my script, you know, I have a better idea now of how to shoot or the anatomy of what I want to shoot right. because I've physically made mistakes already good. that I can physically see yeah, right. and understand from editing my own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of value there, but getting back to what you were talking about with script supervision, it sounds like you're, it's such an important role. It sounds like to me, and it's also, especially the way you took it, you're this bridge between what happened on set and what's going to come into post. Yeah. And I kind of do that now too because I go through to the DI so I know yeah. all the visual effects and stuff like that. But So how important do you think that relationship between a script supervisor and a director is? I mean should you be kind of hip to hip and know what each other's goals are? Yeah, I that's the way I work. People work differently. I think so because I think they can be a great tool. I also know that they can maybe also be a hindrance at times, depending, you know, especially if you're working, you got to work fast, you don't have a lot of choice. And there are rules, but there are also rules that don't matter. And there are rules that work great if you break them. And so to to have someone that has that flexibility, I think the key thing is for that person to tell you when it absolutely doesn't work, You, you know, but if somebody makes some sort of continuity mistake, there's generally a way around it. And it's not forcing a cut or anything. But if there's a story point and not having the gloves on or something ruins that story point, then that's a big thing. So I I think finding a person that's not just read the book, but gets the flow and also a person because of script, 
ideally should be able to work with all the people on the set because that there's a lot of information that's got to go back and forth. You know, everybody does it differently. And, and also it would depend on the director that I was working with because if it was, I had to find that out fast. And that was actually very good for me in dealing with people because I had to find out whether they wanted my opinion about, do you think, you see, that's always the way you put it too. Do you think <laughs> that maybe when we shot him last week, approaching the door, he was a little more angry than when he's walking through the door, you know, that kind of information, which is a little bit out of the sphere of script technically, but it was always the things that I was looking, I'm always looking at performance. <laughs> I just like it. But so it's like the director needs to tell the script what they want, because there are also the script needs to know too, because the director has so much coming into them when it's not a good time. I mean, there are many times when I've wanted to tell the director something, but I knew it wasn't the right time. And I have to wait. Yeah, there's a lot going on on the set. Yeah. Well, I'm struck because as I listened to your amazing uh, origin story, you had originally at some point thought to direct. Do you still harbor that? I, Do you still? Because you can. Yeah. I, I, I. You're the second. I interviewed Susan Littenberg, who's an editor. She did uh, 13 Going on 30 and uh -huh. a few other big films. And she's, she had started out wanting to be a director. And I'm like, at the tail end of our interview, I'm like, well, I'm going to keep bugging you. But I just, you sound like, as I hear you speak, I think you have something to say. That's just me, James. I don't. Yeah, know. I'd love to. But the way that Roger and I work together is such a, a team. We approach it together. We figure out what it's going to be. He'll oftentimes talk with the director, like, 1917 he talked with sam about it was all in one shot so that technically is different but let go of the technical right now and talk about if we were shooting this with cuts who would you want to be with at this point that point so get all of that worked out and what's important in each scene then he comes back to me and goes okay how the hell are we going to shoot this and then figuring out how what technology would help us how we would make the blends and working all of that out in order to make it dramatically as best as possible. So what I do now in working with him is again, from the beginning of the film all the way to the end, because I go through the DI with him. And I also liaise again, because I'm the people person, he's the artist, you know, and he, he I'm trying to let him just think about the tech, about the visual and let him do that. I'm chasing down the fact that do we have that equipment or why is that camera acting that way? Let's figure it out. I talk with the producers or the director at, at times about other things that they need to know because when Roger's on set and operating, he's on the camera and people are afraid to ask him a question, but I am not because I'll tap him on the shoulder and he is not going to bark at me because he has to go home with me. So we have this really, it's like, we're two people, but we're working on one goal. And it's incredibly satisfying in one respect. And because Roger's Roger, we, we do have a lot of, we're able to put our ideas in. So that's also very satisfying. Well, what do you think? I mean, it is always, we're there for the director and that's it. But we can ask, you know, well, what if we do this? And to see your idea in the finished product is cool. So it's good. But I don't think I have time to be a director right now. <laughs> I, really I was just curious because you had brought it up. I, my fault, yeah. No, I would. <laughs> I actually, I, I really would, but I just, 
don't have time. I would also like to produce because I like solving problems. That is just so exciting when something seems absolutely impossible. There's always an answer and finding it is great. Well, you sound like a producer already to me. Just so <laughs> so, um, getting back to the, just a couple of little questions here with the script supervision. Yeah, right. How early should like, cause I'm, I'm mounting my film. So a lot of these questions are posed yeah. from my viewpoint <laughs> of a director, and, you know, yeah. and I haven't heard much of that on a podcast necessarily. Like, I really want my listeners to be brought along on this journey with me as I'm learning this stuff. So how early in the process should a script script supervisor be brought in? Normally they bring them in about two weeks beforehand, but I always thought something more like four weeks would be helpful because one of the things I have to do is have the time to sit down with you and, and you've got a lot going on to understand what you want from the story and also to understand the timeline of the story, because that's a breakdown that they do, a day breakdown, mm -hmm. which when you're in the middle of the craziness of shooting, you use that <laughs> timeline a lot because how dirty should they be? Is this two days later or one day later? So having that when you're calm and you've worked it out is really helpful. And then also the script should be liaising with the other departments like costumes and hair and makeup and if there's a bruise how long is the bruise going to be if there's if you know that they've decided that she's going to spill coffee on her dress then you're going to run over to costumes and say did you get that note you need multiples and things like that so it's really helpful i think to have them on earlier so they see the process when things are go as they're coming along and sometimes can add to it saying but because their mind is always on the practical there, but you do know then we'd have to turn around and do this or something. So I, I would say four weeks, but I'm not sure that they do that often. No, but I'm <laughs> no. going to try. Yeah. <laughs> I might have a fight with my producer. Yeah. But uh, And so what lessons should directors be open to learning from seasoned script supervisors? Because directing, unless you're a t television director, you don't get the chance to do it all that often, right? Yeah. But a script supervisor is a across the board on many, many films. Well, exactly. And also they've worked with other directors. So they can see how somebody else handled it. And they, so they might have a, a suggestion. But I think if you've got someone who knows, and that's the problem, it depends who you have, because they may not know. But if if you have someone who knows what's important and not isn't important, it could save you so much time, or is able to say, it's kind of like having an editor on set, because I think it's good, personally, not to have the editor on set, because the editors that I know well, they like to see it fresh. Mm -hmm. They like to see it as an audience and figure out what their reaction to it is first. So having someone that really knows cutting well is really helpful so long as they're not constantly telling you we have to reshoot this take because that glass isn't exactly where it was but it doesn't matter the angle of the camera change so actually sometimes when you change the angle and you put things exactly where they were they look wrong because the angle is so such an extreme change so if you had someone that knew that, that would be really helpful to, to be reminded when you've got this pressure on to, to do this. And um, I don't know, I, I think I, this isn't necessarily from a script supervisor, but I would say for a director, I worked with a director one time who taught me something that was great. And I, I wish that I'd see it used more often because 
he would get the performance, but the actors would be performing. And then he'd say it on the last one, listen, just do me a favor. Just do it about 30% faster. I'm never going to use it. But, and it was always better because it was more, it was less thought about. It was more off the cuff as a person would speak. And um, I never forget that because it every time it, because I thought, oh, they can't possibly go faster. I can't imagine it. And then when I'd see it, I'd realize, oh, it's not speed. It's just speeded up enough that it sounds more natural. I love hearing that. Which is because one of the hardest things I think is cutting around when an actor has dialogue is cutting around the space in the dialogue because it's not like, okay, go to the other person. So if you have it more compressed together, that sounds right. And it depends, obviously, on the actor. Maybe the, the character, maybe the character is a stumbler or whatever, but it generally helps. Yeah, I mean, I was reading Barry Sonnefeld's book, and he said, you always, you always need to get it faster. Yeah. I mean, I guess he does a lot of comedy. And the reason I was reading is because my script's a unromantic comedy <laughs> which we can get into later but um but thank you for telling for relaying that story because i'll have that in my head now um <laughs> to deal with that i i love learning obviously <laughs> I, I i learned a long time ago that no matter what your title is on set you don't know everything absolutely and you can learn something you can learn something even from the pa who's their first day so on what- set Roger taught me when I first started working with him is the importance of making people invested. So asking them what they think, bring it because also they're, they have their areas of expertise. So if you make them involved, like when I'm doing the workflow and everything, I want to know what I've got an idea of how it's going to run, but I want to know what other people think because half the time, sometimes they can have a better idea, but also if we decide on it together, then it is theirs also. So it's great to involve everyone in it with the knowledge that you've got the final say. So get everything in and then feel no problem about going, okay, this is really great. And I got what you're saying, but I think I'm going to do it this way, period, and move on. But that way, it's just getting that information from other people and getting those different viewpoints. I think that's the key because when you're working on creating a story and telling a story, you have it in your head. So it's really great to see it also from other eyes and get a little bit out of your head, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And when you get people invested, they help you elevate what's in your head. Yeah. You know, I mean, my head's a pretty cool place, but it's much cooler when other people play around <laughs> with whatever comes out. So. <laughs> and I know that you were going to ask about small budget versus large budget. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that one of the things is we approach a larger budget. We don't do the big ones as a small budget because you a small budget makes you think more. And if you can't do something the easy way, you find another way to do it, which in actuality, half the time is better anyway. And when we went to do Blade Runner, they had Denis single camera. Yeah, you know, we'd worked with him before. They did have some production people that had come because they were got some people that were used to small, some people that were used to bigger. And they kept coming to me and going, but when are we going to order the, the nine other cameras? You no, know, we're not going to do nine cameras. And they couldn't see it, how you made a, a, a movie like that without nine cameras, but we couldn't see it the other way. But 
by not assuming those nine cameras and bringing them in, we ended up saving money there that we could use for the things that we really needed to. And I think also in smaller budget, because we just did Empire of Light and that was small and we were talking to, I guess it was the prop person on it and he had done something recently that was much bigger and he said the great thing is you've got less people on a small budget and you're turned to more. You know, you're able to do what you do and so it's a more rewarding feeling that you don't have to talk to seven people about doing what you know is right, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Because I, when I first started out as a PA, I'd, I started out in the little independent films, 100,000. Yeah. 100, and then my first big budget film was General's Daughter. It was mm. John Travolta and James Cromwell. And I came in just for, I was a day player for a week. Mm-hmm. And I kicked butt. So they kept me on the rest of the LA <laughs> shoot. And then gave me my first on-screen credit. Cause I, oh, wow. but I remember just how like JT, this is what we would call him on set, mm-hmm. John Travolta. He had his own base camp and his own PA. I would have to talk to his PA to yeah. tell the PA, the PA would then tell him, you know, it was just this bigger, massive. And I can, that note you just said of the prop yeah. guy, I can see how that might, the more intimate setting of a smaller film, I think might be more rewarding in the end for all of your crew. Yeah. And we really feel that filmmaking is a collaboration and it's very interesting when we've talked to people on podcasts, that's what we're getting back Mm -hmm. from them. That's what they see it as. So I think basically a film is a collaboration. And so if you start having all this hierarchy in it and all this, you need to talk to this person who will talk to this person who will then talk to that person. It just takes time and it takes away from the idea that, hey, we're all here to make a movie. And that's also the most rewarding feeling, too, is it's very rewarding to feel like you're working for a reason. Yeah, and and that the director, because that's the person's vision, or in my case, the Mm writer-director, has brought you together for this, Yeah, I think. Yeah. And I say this a few times on the podcast, so people who've listened to other episodes will hear, have heard this, but I'm... A few years ago, I started realizing that when I'm writing a script, it's not just a blueprint, which is what you often hear people say. Mm-hmm. It's actually a conversation. Yeah, I'm having a conversation with Roger, if he's my DP. I'm having mm-hmm. a conversation with you. I'm mm-hmm. having a conversation with the prop master. I'm having, you know, if I've done my job right in that script, every single one of those people has been invited into the conversation and can see the vision that I've written. Yeah. And that's how I, yes. that's how I look at the blank page and go, all right, let's start the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when, during prep, prep is such a key part. It's funny because Denis Villeneuve always says it's the time for dreaming because anything is possible. So you do need to dream. And we, uh, before Blade Runner, <laughs> we, we got together in, Canada and we were trying to figure out what the world was. So it was really quite a luxury to be able to, to spend that time doing nothing. But then occasionally we get visited by producers who would sit in the room and we would say, well, what if there were army t- tanks coming up the hill, the producer would disappear. And then the next person would no, but that wouldn't work because, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. But in the meantime, he's ordering army tanks because the whole con, but the concept of that time is whatever you say doesn't have to stick. You can go wherever you want, and then 
bring it down to what the film is going to be. So, yeah. So you, one, there was one question I wanted to get your thought on because mm-hmm. historically script supervisors have been seen as, as a, a woman's job. And I think I've seen more male script supervisors recently than like, like a, I'm a member of a Facebook group called I need a script supervisor. It <laughs> <laughs> seems to be a pretty good balance in gender that's posting, but it's a, historically, you know, script supervisor is a job for a woman. And at times they were called script girl or scripty, which I've heard some script supervisors are called scripty, which some people don't like and some are, don't care. What are your thoughts? on I, all of that? I think um, script girl is, is, derogatory. And it was one of the downsides of being a script supervisor because the amount of work you're putting into it. And then I once did a film as a script and it was quite low budget. And I said, really? This way? He said, all the keys are getting it. And then I got up to the very distant location. I got there and found out because the keys talked to one another that everybody was making more money than me. And I walked in and they, well, first he said, well, you're just the script supervisor. And I'm like, well, yeah, do it without me. Try that. But then also he tried to use the concept of, but you've already agreed to it, which I'm actually, that's, that is a weak point of mine because I did agree to it. And I do like to stand by my word, but I also knew that it was wrong for script supervisors overall to be paid less than another key member, a key person, because you're a key also. So that does happen that because it is traditionally a woman's role. But when I was coming up in New York, there was a woman who was one of the first women electricians. Mm-hmm. And um, I just admired her so much because she was breaking boundaries there. She was great and um, was scared of her, you know, because I thought, well, she doesn't want to talk to me. So years later, we've become friends, really good friends. And I told her that, you know, I was always, I don't think you want to know me. She said, I was scared of you. I mean, you were with the in crowd, the director and the DB and everything. So it's funny how your viewpoint. That's, that's interesting. I, um, I, so I, I went to undergrad and grad school and I went mm. to University of Illinois and I studied technical theater, not, mm. not film. And at the University of Illinois, I'm the only the second woman to have graduated with theater technology, master of fine arts. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. And that was in 1996. So we think we've come a long way and yet yeah. we haven't. But I was going to say, I, one of the things I tried to do when I was first starting out was get into 728 as an electrician because I had that yeah, yeah. technical theater background. I messed with lights and I designed scenery. And, and again, that was all a function of I could have gotten a degree in scene design or lighting design, but I wanted to learn what the technical director did so that I could use a budget better when I designed. Like it was, that's just the way my brain worked. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it makes sense. But yeah, I tried to get into 728 and it wasn't a friendly environment out here in LA in the 90s for a woman trying to get into the union. Same in New York. Though. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to to meet that friend of yours and just go, nice <laughs> job. <laughs> but I know I know what it took um, yeah, to get in yeah. here. But yeah, it's it's crazy. I'm I'm hoping, I'm feeling a shift. And I'm hoping it's a permanent one. Yeah. That we're getting better and breaking through those ceilings and stuff a little more. I think, I mean, we've got got a lot of talk of diversity out there and all of that. But I think the downside of that sometimes is when you put a person in a position that um, they don't know without doing any kind of 
help in helping them learn. So therefore, when they fail, they go, oh, look, see, that woman can't, women can't do that or whatever. So I think you've got to be really careful to help people. When I was becoming a script supervisor, nobody would help me. Nobody. And it was so complicated and confusing. So I always, I determined once I became one and I did become one, I I decided I'm going to help anybody who asked me. And I did. Amazing. I know. I, we come from like even my generation. I'm not sure. I think we're close, but I don't, I think you're a little older possibly. Yes. Yes. That's okay. Um, But even in, even cause I'm Gen X. So I was born in 1970. Mm -hmm. Even as I was coming up, there was this, if there was a woman above me, they didn't help. Really? Because it was almost a threat sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. Not always, but there was still that. And I've made it as I've come up, I always try to reach back yeah. or somebody asks me a question and gets me on the phone and I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll talk their ear off about what I do know. It's important. It is. It's important. And I'm not saying, I mean, we've all gotten help along the way or we wouldn't be where we are. Mm-hmm. I value that so much that I'm like, you have to turn around and give that back. Exactly. You have to pay it forward. Exactly. But yeah, I think there's there was a scarcity of women at the top and they thought that, yeah. and I heard this from a conversation I just had on this podcast. And this woman said she was the head of visual effects at Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. She was the VP for quite a while. And she said they made them go on this retreat. And this one time there was all these, all the women were in one group somehow. Mm-hmm. And one of the executives turned to her uh, that, that was in that group and said, you know, I just didn't grow up. There wasn't any sports or anything. So I didn't grow up going we have to work towards this championship and win together. I, when, when I grew up, because, you know, Title IX just passed in the 70s. So she was like, I grew up with, I need to get my work done and do it well, kind of on her own. And I was like, you know what? That makes so much sense. That might have been some of what was going on. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. That we weren't being raised in the culture of working towards something together, whether it be team or theater, or a movie. Yeah. All of those are collaborative things. And I did grow up playing sports, mainly because I forced it. Like, my, me and two of my friends started the soccer team at my high school in the 80s. Wow. I grew up in Mexico City, just so you know. Wow. So my family moved down there when I was one, and I came back to the U.S. when I was 19. But there wasn't a women's team mm-hmm. when we got there in high school. And I had been playing goalie since I was eight. Wow. Like, just randomly on the, you know, at lunch with all the boys. Mm-hmm. And when my friend Lynette Rivera and neither of us can remember the third mm-hmm. person, but the two, of, the two of us with this other third person, we literally bugged on a daily basis the men's soccer coach <laughs> two years until he let us start a women's team. And that was 84, 85, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And we then started and we then also begged and got them to start the softball team. So those are that's the world kind of I came from where we saw the fruits of working together on a mission and then getting it and then doing it. And I can only imagine when she said that, I'm like, I guess if I didn't have that, I would, I would think of things differently. Because mm-hmm. if you watch men, they do mentor other men. Yeah, they do. It's this culture mm-hmm. of doing that. And I think that's because 
they've always had the culture of a sports team or something else when you look That's at it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought of that. <laughs> I hadn't either. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Because why? Why would you do it the other way? Right. And I'm, I think that's part of why we're, I'm seeing, especially in younger women, a much more let's support each other and collaborate. It might have something to do with Title IX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Anyway. We often, uh, you know, in our camera teams, we always seem to have women in the department because it's a good balancing. And on the last movie that we did, we had two in our department and then there was one in um, the DIT department and they were great. I, I told them one time, I said, it's amazing to me to see you guys humping over all this stuff and w- it being completely natural. Yeah. And no one's saying, oh, are you okay? Uh, that's cool. And yeah, I want I want to see a balanced just behind the scenes too, you know, because I think we all work better that way too. Yeah. There's, there's a nice balance of energy that way, exactly. I think, on a set. Exactly. Okay. So more recently been a digital workflow, workflow consultant and describe what that entails. Yeah. And how did that start? See, okay. So when Roger and I were... First together, I was script supervisor. He was a DP. We were we actually met on a movie, so it was nice because we were friends during the movie. So our relationship is basically based on work and friendship. So when we're in the middle of something personal and then something work comes up, we just flip over to work. It actually makes us very boring. But anyway, so we for a while I continued scripting, but because the script is really the director's choice, there would be times when he would be working on one movie and I'd be working on another. And we decided we just wanted to be together. So I agreed that I would stop scripting for a while, which was a very, very, very hard Mm. decision. Who am I then? Blah, blah, blah. So I was with him, but I can't not do things. So because I have this technical background and I know so much about camera, I ended up doing it all behind the scenes and overseeing dailies this was film days and I knew the labs and then making sure we had what we needed but it would take the production several weeks to understand why I was there and I didn't have a title or anything and I wasn't on the call sheet and it was it wasn't fun at all but I couldn't not do anything so then at one point we realized I should just have a title. So I was a part of the film because sometimes people could, you know, turn around and it, it was not pleasant, but we still did the same thing, but we had to figure out a title and we figured what we do is very different the way we work because there are two of us. The fact that I interact with visual effects a lot because visual effects always wants things shot a certain way. And of course, oftentimes the DP doesn't want it shot that way. But there's always a way to figure out, obviously, they need what they need, but there is a way to shoot it that they get what they want and the DP gets what they want. So rather than have that clash on set, I always work with them right from the start. What do we need? How do we do this? Blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, I do the dailies because they're of a big concern to Roger. And I am the person that deals with production the whole time. So we said, okay, well, let's just do the digital workflow because that is something that they understand but that isn't all I do and I but I do I come in once we figure out what we're shooting on how we're shooting it and I I talk with the lab I talk about what 
the steps are. I talk to the studio, what are the deliverables? Um, I talk about, is there a safety area? Is there not? What's the resolution? When you shoot digitally, you're, you're working with the cards. We call them mags. So you have to figure out how many mags you need because you need to know the turnaround because we send the mags. Either we send them to, to them or we put them on a shuttle drive. So then they have to go in quarantine. So you can't touch them. So we have to know until the LTO, the backup's made. So we need to know that we have enough. So we have to figure out how much we're shooting because with every director, that's different. Although I would say basically we shoot a lot less than some people do. And then during the shoot, I'm watching the dailies and I'm coming back on set and talking to Roger, talking to the director if I saw something, talking to visual effects to double check something. So I'm keeping track of that. And then the post super comes in at one point, I'm, I'm working with them on the visual side. Um, and, and I follow through all of that, even through to the post, because I already talked with the finishing producer, they call it now, the, the DI producer, um, about what the resolution of the DI is, what we're making out of it, and how, how we're going to schedule it and all of that. It really came about as what in the world can we call what I do? And so in a way, it's an easy one. I mean, because I do do that. I, I don't know what you'd call the rest, but, and I like it because also if we have an issue, because when we shot 1917, we were shooting on a prototype camera. It had, it wasn't released yet. So there were a few bugs in it. So we were, it was frightening, but we, but it was such a great camera. So um, it was the mini LF and that's what I want to use. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great camera. It's a really great camera. And um, we ended up, we were kind of beta testing it. So we found some of the problems and one of the problems was in a port and it affected a day because then I saw it. I mean, it was very hard to see. We had a very good timer that could see these tiny things. So then I went through the steps of, okay, Let's check this. Let's check that. You know, how can we fix what we've done already? And it took us three days to figure out what, where the problem was. Cause you know, you don't know whether it's the camera, whether it's the rig, whether it's the processing. So that kind of detective work is something because I also, I work with our departments, electric and camera and find out what they need. You know, how are you guys doing? Oh, you need that equipment. Let me go check to make sure that it's coming in or. Oh, did you not get enough crew? Okay, I'll go talk to them. Somebody didn't get paid overtime. I'll go talk to them. So it's just all that other stuff that comes up in movies that has to be dealt with or what we're doing next week, what we need. I deal with as well as the digital workflow. I have to tell you that what you're, after hearing your entire answer, I really think you should be have a producer title somewhere in there. That's my opinion on what I just heard. On Empire of Light, I did get an associate producer credit. Okay. For our listeners who don't mm-hmm. know what DI means, or oh, right. somebody asked oh. me, because, because in, in old terms, you would just say color correct, correct? Yes. Or something to that effect. The DI is a digital internet I- intermediate. So basically in the old days, you took the negative you timed, you graded the negative to, for the color shifts and all of that and made the answer print. Then you made an intermediate, a CRI or an internegative, and then you made the prints off of that. Now you take your cut, you bring it in digitally, and you're working within this digital platform. And 
you the reason why you need to grade is if you see a film that's a shot a scene that's really red and then you cut to something that happens to be yellow you've got an image you're going to see the color differently depending what color it's coming afterwards so you just blending it to to make it work you know maybe you bring down the yellow a, a little bit or whatever to make it not have a pop not a jump from one to one so because we tend not to do things in post there are other people that in the di process might be hi- hiding lights or hiding this and all of that and we try to shoot it in camera as much as we can but the di is basically now because things are released to theaters if you remember that <laughs> on a digital cinema package which instead of a print so that goes to that or you make your other deliverables i know people do it differently for us because we're coming from that film background we're making a, a p3 which is the color space digital intermediate and that becomes our master so then when we go to another color space for television for the rec 709 when we go to that we're going to match it because it's so slightly different the colors respond slightly differently we'll match it to what we consider our master which is the di that's what we do <laughs> okay. no that's cool i just wanted in case someone didn't know what yeah, di means. exactly so are there things that you've learned that help make a film the filmmaking process smoother what should i be thinking about or be aware of as i get closer yeah. to getting my feature filming i think prep is so important and i think you talked about oh you're going to do storyboards i think storyboards are really important because what it does is it makes you focus on that scene and figure out what's important why is that scene there oh it's because it's telling us this and then when you go to shoot it drop it if you have to because on the day having the actor in the corner actually makes a lot more sense or something like that mm-hmm. but then you know that actually though the key moment is this and that you'll get that and i think I, this is kind of a side way of answering this question but i think it's so important not to feel that you have to cover everything to give you all the options in the end because if you have less to actually shoot you can take more time in shooting it and i also think because cinema is a visual medium use cinema and don't rely always on dialogue because the strongest cinema or motion picture is when you know something because of the frames some i mean it, dialogue yes it's also important but if you also are emphasizing a point by visual it's much more visceral in the viewer and we worked with Benicio del Toro and Sicario who's a wonderful actor mm-hmm. and the script was quite good but he would often and i've never seen another actor do it quite like this he'd often go up to dinny and say i don't think i need this dialogue here i think i can do it on my face and by golly he could and it made it much stronger because it wasn't overly stating it so i think that's important i think find collaborators be choose who you're going to work with and be sure that they're working that they've got your back basically because it's a hard job and you don't want someone going on a different road so have a producer that yes is working with whoever's supplying the money yes that's important but it's also trying to get your vision on screen so if you say i i absolutely need this for the scene their first reaction 
isn't, no, there's no money going, but what are you trying to do with that? Oh, can you do it this way? So, you know, having that kind of backup is great. And also communicating with your crew that you've chosen is important so they feel a part of it. So they're going to do that extra mile for you. That's going to be so helpful in the long run. Do the, because you got you guys have worked with some pretty mm-hmm. well-known directors. Do they all do that? Do, what? do the Coen brothers do that? Do the Sam talk to the crew, like get everybody on their um, side? Yes, uh, in different ways. But yes, the Coens are very um, collaborative. They're also very strong in what they want. But they will have like weekly production meetings where they talk about where it's going. And they will say, listen, I know that you want to red paint in this set rather than the green that we already have we're really low on this budget is it possible to do it with a green but if you tell me there's a reason for the red that's fine but and being really upfront as to why you know what their concerns are and in 1917 that was amazing because of what it was we had to plan it way in advance we didn't even build the sets till we knew what the moves were because we would then have to build a trench. And if we had to go around to a front shot or something, we needed a side trench right there so we could come around to the front. But because we had it all laid out and because it was basically in these huge takes covering a lot, we needed every department there. We would have, we shot the 1st of April and in November. I remember sitting at a meeting with this schematic in front of me and looking up and seeing a prop person there, a wardrobe person there, there, a makeup person there. And I've never had that experience before where they've had their input so early. And it definitely, you could see that. But yes, and Sam does collaborate with the different departments and making sure that they know what you're thinking is really helpful. But everybody works in different ways. I I was just curious because that's such a I love that piece of advice. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering how how that gets translated with some of the the directors you've worked with. So thank you. Well, I think this is just a tiny little thing, but if you come on the set and you say good morning to people by name, what, because you are the director, that's huge because I've worked on sets when the directors just walk in and they don't, they'll only maybe talk to key people, but not other people. And that makes such a difference. And when we, um, this isn't from the director's viewpoint, but when we were working with Olivia on Empire, She's just so amazing. She just is normal, regular, and she's great to work with. And I was going out of the set one day to pee, and she was standing outside. There was a little platform, and she was having a cigarette with a third grip in a deep conversation about something. And I thought, you know, I've never seen that with an actor of her level. (laughs) Because oftentimes they never introduce to the third grip. Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, yeah. Because as a director, you are setting the tone of the set. Oh, choose your AD carefully, too. You know, that is setting the tone that you want on the set. What attracts you to a project or a director or those the same thing to you? I don't know. And do you need to feel invested in the story and or the director to work on the project? Oh, absolutely. Um, The first thing is the story. Granted, if it's a director that, that, you know, we've worked with many times, we're going to read that story wanting to really like it but the first thing is the story the story has to draw us in and because that's what it's about and why do you want to spend so many months 
working on something that doesn't speak to you. So if there's a story that you really like, the next step is you have to talk to the director because the director may see it as a Southern Gothic horror film, but you see it as something completely different. And so if you're going for two different things, then it's only fair to part ways at that point. But it's mainly story. Yes. A lot of times it is director, but um, which is sometimes difficult because sometimes you get a script and they say, Oh yeah, yeah, no, it's not finished yet. I mean, because we've also started films that with scripts that weren't finished and that is a disaster right there. But it's definitely a story. Oh, cool. You've worked with some of the best-known directors in the business, mm-hmm. the Coen brothers, Sam Mendes, Denis Villeneuve. Uh, how has that shaped you as an artist? As you know, and What have you learned from them? I think everybody has a different way of seeing things, and, and you learn something from everyone. And Sam is amazing with story. He's just really great with story, and, and, and watching him keep the story in his head is great. Denis is also wonderful with story, and he's also quite adventuresome sometimes visually like in um in uh prisoners which was the first movie that we worked with him we were shooting and one day we were outside the house we were shooting something and he goes there's a tree push into the bark of the tree and that seemed very weird we were way behind really weird why do you want that but he would he knew that he wanted that so we did that and it's a wonderful shot in the film because it's very ominous. There's no reason for it to be there, but it just pushes into this tree. So we learn from him, think outside the box and do something visual that in a way, because it's so doesn't fit anything, it's actually quite unnerving. Yeah, and the Coens in their knowing exactly what the script is ahead of time and they're working on storyboards, but using storyboards more as a way to learn further about the script and then their incredible ability to be on the set and realize, oh no, we'll play it in one. Uh, And Denis is also amazing because we did something in um, Sicario where we had a high wide shot just for some cars coming into the compound. And then we were going to cover Josh and Emily in their dialogue down there. But when we did the, pull up they got out of the car and they continued they did in tiny little specks in frame they talked they did all their dialogue so then afterwards we go okay so now we're doing the coverage he goes no i think it works in that and to have the courage of his conviction was pretty amazing because you know he does have the studio watching the dailies and all of that and and to have your the courage of your convictions and then therefore go for the shot and then have more time to do the other shot that you really wanted to do anyway but yeah, we learn from every director. I mean, and also because every film is just different situations that um, you think something's not possible and then you find out it is. Well, it's it's about manufacturing those dreams, right? Making the impossible possible. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so my film, mm-hmm. Alone Girl, is a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy <laughs> where I take the normal rom-com and turn it on its head. What advice would you give me as I plan out to make my film? Well, I do think what I said about collabor- collaborators, finding collaborators and using the prep period to sort of enrich the script because the costume person might have some great ideas on, on how to portray something. And you had also asked at one point um, about whether 
something that's funny in dailies. Yeah, that's it? coming up. Yeah, yeah. That's coming up. Yeah. yeah. So, so I guess we can fold these two in. So Spielberg was took part in a panel that the Academy gave mm-hmm. this year for all the nominee, nominated directors. And the moderator asked about directing comedy. And Spielberg said that if the crew laughs at the performance on set, that means it won't be funny in post. And I was wondering what your opinion was on that. Because you've been around. <laughs> I agree. And I don't. I'm not exactly sure why that is. Is it because it needs to be cut to fit the story and what you're seeing is something as a whole? But I know that I've seen, I've been involved in things that seemed so funny at the time. And there was one thing that I had to look at the dailies a couple of times and I just was howling and I thought, oh, this is a really bad sign. And it wasn't as funny in the final cut which i think because it had to serve the purpose of the story so it couldn't be as long because it was a lot of ad living that was just very funny i i think comedy is very difficult very because there's a ma- there's a lot of technical and, and I, I don't want to say formulas but ways that you have to set up reveal so i i, I think it's difficult and i don't really know why that happens but i have heard that before and i've seen it before that if it's funny on the day it's not that funny afterwards I, I i like hearing these things because it prepares me to understand that maybe if 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 the crew is laughing at a certain take hey let's just get another one just to see you know like but i know like i do know so one of my short films is called Bozanova and it's a uh, it's about a clown who's a gigolo yeah, of course yes <laughs> and there's a very funny moment if i do say so myself and i'm only saying that because it always gets a laugh. I'm not just saying that mm-hmm. because I laugh. Mm-hmm. But we, did, I mean, if if you were to look at the raw and I would extend past where I cut, yeah. you would hear the entire crew lose it laughing. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's why I got curious about it. Mm-hmm. Although I do think it's the kind of broad thing. I'm not going to give it away in case you want to yeah. watch it. But it's the kind of broad take. That, and it wasn't a, an extended thing. It's just a moment. Uh that I think might be a little different than what like a Judd Apatow throwing things in to, to make their act keep going and going and going, you know, although I tend to it it, like in that script, whatever, let's get the words, let's get it the way it's written. Let's get a couple takes. Mm -hmm. And then I ask the actors do one just for yourself. Yeah. yeah, For yourself. And then we're done. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes like I have my friend James in there, and you'll see there's a, he plays the bad clown who's, it's a revenge. It's a, it's a clown western. <laughs> so, you know, um, at the heart of it, there's a revenge going on. But the bad clown is my friend James, who's like, mm-hmm. and he, he went off on this <laughs> ad-libbed rant specifically for me that I put in the film <laughs> because it made me laugh so hard. And he's like, he was talking about the his wife and he's like, you know, and we're thinking about getting a cat and I hate cats, but she wants a cat and you went up and because I own cats, uh-huh. but it was so funny to me. <laughs> and I put it in there and it just laughs because of his performance. And that was not written in the script. Yeah. Not yeah. one word that was written. But I love being open to that, to getting it the way it's in the script, because you never know which one's really going to service. If the actor is that is has they own the character at that mm-hmm. point. Right. So they they might show you something you didn't see when you were writing it. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, I think another thing 
before starting a film that, that's really important is don't start a film with a script that's too long, mm-hmm. like with a, 150 pages. Don't yeah. do it because you might as well, when you're insane mind, because you won't be when you're shooting, pull out the things, decide what should be get pulled out. Mine, mine's 107 in case you were curious. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Got a lot to work with then. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's on its 28th draft, so I've done a lot of work on it. It's ready to oh, shoot. Oh, wow. So, oh, cool. Yeah. I've talked cool. about that quite a bit on the podcast. <laughs> it's in the rewrite. It's in really digging in. And So when it comes to the anatomy of a scene, what should I keep in mind as I'm directing? And I'm really interested because you were a script supervisor, so you <laughs> probably have to look at this a lot. That will help an actor's performance or the written word of a scene kind of shine well, in the edit bay. I think... Um, you know, having done the work ahead of time and knowing what that scene is there for. And is this scene, the importance of this scene that we reveal that she never had a home? This is the first time we learned, or is the importance of the scene that we reveal he has a new car? I I don't know. But knowing that ahead of time, one, you can explain to the actors, which I think Helping the actors see your vision is really important and being able to tell them what it is that you want from this scene. You know, I don't really care about the conversation in the beginning. It's really at this point before you leave, that's what we're building up to. And I, th- I think that's helpful for an actor to know. And again, though, actors are very different, you know, and you have to figure out right away what an actor needs. We, um, have oftentimes worked with an actor that didn't want to rehearse, didn't want to talk about it, wanted to go on there, hear what it was about, and then go for it. And then playing against an actor that wanted to rehearse and also that maybe the first actor is good on takes one to three, the other ones need six to seven to get to that point. And that's seeing that ahead of time and identifying that then you know I need both of their reactions. Maybe I want to make sure that I cover it in such a way that I do have, I can make singles work if need be. Because, you know, you want to get the best from your actors. So you have to figure out how it is that they need to work. Do you, so if an actor, like if I'm working with actors that I've never worked with, is it good for me to possibly reach out to people who have worked with those actors just to find out some of that? That's really good. That's good. And then, if you talk with them and if you, will you get a rehearsal period with them? Because if you get a rehearsal period, it kind of tells you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we were going to have a couple days. Mm. I don't know. It's not going to be a big one. This is only, we've got it at 5 million and most women, if you've noticed, we're kind of relegated to our first film has to be 50 to a hundred grand. And part of the point I'm trying to make with trying to get this made is that, that we get, it made for the budget that I can make it well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So during, I'm going to, we're going to switch gears and talk about your current um, obsession. I only say, I only say that because I know we've been emailing back and forth about it. (laughs) During the pandemic, you and Roger embarked on a new adventure and started a podcast, Team Deacons. Mm -hmm. From our emails, I get the sense that it was your idea, was it? Yeah. And how did it come about? We have always done a lot of outreach to students and everything. There's something wonderful about being with people starting out because they've got the passion that we've got and we want to maintain. So it feeds us. And also we want to help them. So 
we have a website that I, I also program and set up and it allows us to answer questions and all that. When we were doing 1917, when we were, I'm not a podcast person. I don't really listen to them. I don't have the time. And if I were to listen to them, I'd be doing something else. And then I have to, oh, I missed that. I've got to go back. I would just take so much time. But anyway, we were doing a lot of Q and A's for 1917. And afterwards we come off the stage and we sort of get mobbed by a lot of students that would ask these questions, all of which were the same questions. So I thought about it and I said to Roger, I said, Roger, who didn't know what podcasts are, <laughs> I said, there is such a thing as a podcast. I said, I think if we answered those questions, we could just say, listen to the podcast and we wouldn't have to do this all the time. And it would be out there. And he goes, oh, okay, maybe. I started, I had no idea because I'm visual. I know visual. I didn't know sound. And so I had to, I just started talking to people, what are podcasts? What are they? Da, da. And I knew that I had all this Adobe software, so I knew I had one of them did sound. So that's I figured, okay, let's give it a shot. So we started it. We started in January, and I actually started releasing in <clears throat> April because I had this concept. Because I'm an idiot, I had this concept. I'm releasing twice a week. <laughs> Every somebody said, James, you know, something twice a week. I know. I did. I'm dying doing it once a week right now. I know. I know, I know. I mean, it was also, I didn't know what I was doing. So I would get up in the morning. I would work all day long. We would do maybe a recording, but I would also work all day long till the wee hours to working on cutting and learning cutting and learning sound and learning how to take things out or put things in. And it was such a learning curve for me. I finally got it because in Adobe Audition, you can get a visual representation of the sound, the spectrograph or something. And then I got it. Oh, give me something to look at. And um, so Roger at first was, oh, okay. You know, and the first couple are about specific, like composition and all that. But then we started talking to people and it got really interesting to us. And a friend of ours called me up and said, it's just because we used to do these big, before the pandemic, big dinners, like 16 at a dinner and I'd cook and we'd have these great conversations. He says, it's just like eavesdropping on one of those dinner conversations. And that became my model, basically, that it's a conversation. And it was really interesting. It was really nerve wracking in the beginning because we didn't know how to do it and, and work private people. And, you know, we have to talk to people that we have to talk to, but then doing this for pleasure. But then it got really interesting. And it was interesting to see how you would talk to People that do the same thing, but they approach it differently. But then the base is the same. The idea of collaboration is the same and, and their passion is there. So it was, it really fed us during the um, pandemic. One, it gave us something to do. We weren't sure we would do it again, but then we missed it. So we're going back to it. It's just, it's not going to be twice a week because I just, I've got so much else going on. There's no way, but yeah. It was a good project to do, you know, and I learned a lot about podcasts, but I'm still not really a podcast person. <laughs> I think you're more of a podcast person than you know. Um, you have a wonderful voice, here, just so you know. And that's not just me saying it. We, that's like all of like me and my friends were like, I love James's voice. <laughs> so, I was a surprised that I got a response because I was like, I'm just going to send an email out just so you know. And I guess I assumed that you had someone doing the work for you. Because you're, yeah. you're, you know, 
Roger and James Deacons and <laughs> are busy. So it it really made me, you made me smile like super big when you responded um, because it was, it, it was just a shot in the dark for me. Right. I think my friend David Boland's the one who mm-hmm. clued me into it. And he's a DP. He's a very talented, young, up and coming oh. Canadian DP. And he, but he posted it on his, on his um, Instagram and like some screenshot of, of, I don't know what guest. And I went and looked it up and I was addicted <laughs> and it got me through some rough, rough patches of, oh. of me trying to get this made. There was the two episode part you did with John Killick. Yeah. Just, he's so amazing. Yeah. And it was yeah. so great to hear because he's such a nuts and bolts yeah, yeah. independent film producer that it was exactly somehow it was exactly what I needed to hear at that time. Cause I was in a very low point of thinking I'd found some money and it just wasn't going right. Yeah. And I realized that mm-hmm. cause it's a marriage, like you said, the collaborators. Yeah. And I'd realized that I didn't want to be with those collaborators, but would I be insane to break? And I decided that, yeah, mm-hmm. I had to break from that. Good it for you. wasn't going to, the film I wanted to make wasn't going to come out of that relationship. And mm-hmm. so I just, A, I just want to thank you guys for making that decision. <laughs> uh, but to find out that you have the same spirit I do, I think we've got <laughs> the same spirit that you're like, oh, I'm going to figure this out because I too am doing this on my own. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this is great. I can, you know, we can bounce ideas off each other. It was just cool. Finding <laughs> a, a kindred spirit. So I do have a question from, um, I, sometimes I, depending on if I know the person, a person who really likes someone I'm talking to. And I have a friend who is also a, a fan of your podcast. His name's mm-hmm. Bill Pruitt. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know what's been the most surprising thing you've learned from a guest on your podcast. We always learn something because we have an idea of what we're going to talk about but then we let it it's like when you make a shopping list you don't have to refer to it again and so we let it go where it goes but I think there's always something when we talked to the Russian director Andrei Feginsev that was wonderful because that was we've always admired his movies we didn't know him at all and I managed to get in touch and asked whether, didn't think they'd want to, whether he and his DP would want to. And to talk to that man and finding out he's such a open, gentle guy. And when we, in particular, we asked, because everybody always talks about Elena, one of his movies, there's a white horse, she's in a, in a, a train and she goes by and there's a r- road intersection and there's a dead white horse there. And we said, everybody says the meaning that it's white. Is it because of this or that? What, why did you do it? And he said, because it would show up better against the tarmac. <laughs> there really is no other reason. And just talking to people like that, that have done such extraordinary work and you realize they're coming from the same place. You know, they're, it's not some, they're just trying to tell a story and, I don't, I can't think, I mean, we're always surprised because we always learn something from them that we didn't know why, why they chose a project or something. And it's interesting. I'm sorry, I don't have a better answer for that because I'm sure if I looked at the list of the podcast, I'd go, oh, and that one, that was a surprise in this one. But I think the thing that has actually surprised us overall is the amount of passion that everybody has, that it's across the board. And the, it's, it's made us understand why we do what we do 
because we hear that passion in other people's accounts and we realize, yeah, that makes sense. So the fact that everybody has that passion that we've chosen to talk to is pretty cool. Oh, that is cool. I just, I love having these conversations. Yeah. Every time I have one, I, I get off and I just, the rest of the day I'm smiling because yeah. of all the, the connection that's been made yeah. between two artists, right? Yeah, it is good. It's really good. I know that Team Deacons is coming up for its second season drop, yeah. which I'm super excited about. <laughs> Can you tell us more about that when it's dropping and anything else that you want to shout out? We're putting the first episode of season two on Wednesday, next Wednesday, the 7th, actually. And then we'll do it weekly on Wednesdays. So it's exciting that because we've been doing it for a couple of months, it's just that I've been so busy. I haven't been able to pull it all together. So it's great finally to get these voices out because, yeah, that's good. And, you know, we are also working on um, exhibitions for the book Byways, Roger's Still Photography. And we've got a, a um, exhibition in Santa Monica on the 17th of September. Oh, yeah. it is. I want to come. Can I come? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The RSVP on the Instagram, there's an RSVP link in the bio. Okay. Just It's just the RSVP. But yeah, it's really interesting because it's not only from the book, but it's some other photographs that he's taken that have never been seen before. Oh, amazing. But we're doing that, and then we go to Europe because we're also doing one in uh, an exhibition in Italy and in Poland. So it's just trying to get all that together because I've never put on an exhibition before and been involved in that. So it's actually a lot of work. Oh, wow. <laughs> Amazing. And then we're dealing with the fact that Empire is releasing soon, Empire of Light. So we've got to go to TIFF and... It's, I think, opening the London Film Festival, so we got to be there, and we'll be doing some things like that. Oh, wow. So I thought when we were doing Empire, and it was a tough movie to make, we looked at each other and went, should we take a break? And I said, you know what? I've got an idea. Let's just do the exhibitions in the autumn and take time off. That's hardly time off. I'm not very good at figuring out time off. <laughs> it, it's huge amount of work but and also then we decided to do the podcast again because we kind of missed talking to people yeah we're busy <laughs> i'm excited to hear who you who you've got on yeah. this season and uh i'm excited to go to that to the exhibition oh thank you so much for coming on the podcast absolutely it's been such a fun oh good <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy. <laughs>